1: W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Just ahead on the program, The Mold That Changed the World, a musical about the invention of penicillin, takes stage at Pullman Yards starting tomorrow. And we'll hear from the creatives behind the production. Plus, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Sam Beam, better known as Iron and Wine. But first, happy Halloween. Today is the day for costuming, candy, and general creepiness. Halloween is my favorite holiday. By the way, Lois and I are not of like minds on this, but there are others that do share my spooky sentiment. Atlanta baker Anna Ariaga is definitely on Team Halloween. In fact, she may just be an honorary captain. Her online and pop-up shop, Ghoul Next Door, specializes in themed terrifying treats, and she provides them year-round. The ghoul herself joins me now via Zoom. Anna, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. Hello. It's a thrill, and happy Halloween to you. Happy Halloween to you. So let's start out by painting a picture of what people can expect from Ghoul Next Door. Would you name, you have such great creative names, would you name and describe some of the cookies that you carry?
2: Sure. So uh, a favorite that
1: has been around since 2020 is
2: the Camp Crystal Lake cookie. It's a s'more cookie with graham crackers and Hershey bars and roasted marshmallows like you're by a campfire. Um, waiting for Jason to creep up on you.
1: I was going to say um, that
2: is a Friday the
1: Thirteenth <laughs> reference, isn't
2: yeah. it? It is. It tell. is. And we have also one of the cookies that I featured at um, Food and Wine this year, which was American Psycho. It was a bacon bourbon and toffee cookie, kind of like that Americana. Everything has bacon in it. <laughs> yeah, feel. Yeah. With a little bit of bourbon and all the cookies are oversized, they're half pound cookies. So they all have uh, a lot of good treats inside and on top and very exciting textures and flavors.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. A half pound cookie. Yes. Oof. That's a lot of cookie. All right. (laughs) Well, can you tell us about when you got interested in baking? Yeah. So I grew up in a household where we always celebrated
2: holidays and baked a lot of goodies for them. And so I would usually take over the baking portion of the holidays and make brownies and cakes and whatnot. And so uh, in 2011, I kind of needed a creative outlet and decided that I would give my shot at decorating cakes. Um, and I kind of just taught myself from watching TV shows and online and and I wow. went from there to
1: a side business. Wow. So that was in 2011. So you are completely self-taught. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right on. So when did you decide to make this your full-time gig?
2: So, um, I started in 2011 as the side business and it was picking up pretty well. Um, I couldn't do It as much as I wanted to because I was working a full-time job. But in 2020, I moved to Atlanta and five days later, everything shut down for the pandemic.
1: (laughs) Five (laughs) days before the pandemic, you moved here. Oh my goodness.
2: Very unplanned. So my job prospects had kind of dwindled a little bit. A lot of people weren't hiring at the time. And I thought, you know, I can already bake and it's already something that I think would do well. So people need some comfort during the pandemic. They need some treats to kind of rely on. And so I decided to just go full force into baking. And was your original goal to work for an established bakery? So I did actually try several times where I was previously living and also when I moved here to get hired at a bakery. But unfortunately, without any experience, a lot of the interviews were like, hey, we like your portfolio, but we don't know if you can work in this fast paced environment, which was the point of trying to get hired there is to get some experience.
3: Right.
1: So once I couldn't get
2: hired, I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it on my own.
1: So what was that pivot towards full time entrepreneurship like? I assume that at the beginning you had to do everything, right? I, I'm still doing everything. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, it's a lot of work.
2: It's a lot of um, kind of trying to figure things out uh, as you go and, and being in a new state and a new city. I had to kind of figure out licensing things and just, you know, all the resources are out there. And the good thing about um, doing like pop ups and things like that is there's a lot there's a really great community to rely on that you can ask
1: questions and kind of get um, some ideas on
2: what direction to go.
1: That is a big deal. It does take a village. Entrepreneurship is no joke.
4: Yes.
1: (laughs) Indeed. So tell us about the name Ghoul Next Door. It's fantastic. And I'm just wondering how easily you came across it. Thank you. Uh, So-
2: yeah, the previous baking venture I had was a a different name that I didn't really feel attached to. And I wanted something that kind of expressed who I was more personally, since I'm going to be doing all the baking and decorating. And so already being interested in Halloween and spooky things and, you know, um, horror films and and whatnot, I just kind of leaned into that and and thought I, I like the wordplay of girl next door but it's a ghoul next door <laughs> so it just kind of worked out and I, I like the way it sounded and everybody really
1: embraced it so it worked out I love it when people can lean into who they really are that's just yeah lovely yeah. well I heard back in 2020 you got to compete in the dessert wars competition which was held in Atlanta that year they bring the competition to a different city each year this year I think was Charlotte But back in 2020, it was Atlanta. How did you come to be able to participate in that competition?
2: So it was a very last minute thing. I think they had posted about it probably on Instagram. And um, somebody had seen it and said, hey, you should probably try and um, enter in this. And I think I had just missed the cutoff or it was about to be cut off. And I decided to enter in my information. And they called me that night (laughs) to say, hey, yeah, we're going to take you. So I had about a week to prepare. I want to say it was like a thousand samples in my my first year of business to try, and, to try and compete at Dessert Wars. So that was kind of a big undertaking, but it was very exciting. It was a cool thing to be a part of.
1: And then how did it go for you? I heard you might have broken the top 10.
2: Uh, yeah. So it went really well. I um, I was in the top 10 for People's Choice in 2020. And then the next year I was in the top 10
1: for Judges Choice. That's so great. it went really well. And I heard you've had the opportunity to serve your baked goodies to some pretty famous people like the cast and crew of CW's Legacies and our Atlanta treasure, Big Boy. How'd you get hooked up with the high profile clients? You know,
2: um, doing the pop-ups has been kind of the best experience, not only for, you know, gaining customers, but you also make a lot of connections there. You just kind of run into random people. Suzanne um, Visathan, the owner of Buttermilk, um, was a customer at my one of my first pop ups. And um, she's been very supportive. And so I'm going to be doing a collaboration with her in the winter. And, um, you know, meeting people who work for CW or who work for Yelp, just a lot of different um, entities that I was able to meet just from pop ups. It was very,
1: very cool. Well, what's next for you? Would you eventually like to have a brick and mortar shop? Absolutely. I'm trying to work in that direction. Um, I've been looking
2: around. I'm not really sure what place would be best for me, but I want to eventually have a brick and mortar that you kind of get the full experience of what Cool Next Door is, where it's it's kind of a little haunted, spooky vibe, but not scary. The, the children are really important to me, so I'm not trying to scare them off, <laughs> or any adults either. But, uh, you know, something that's a little more immersive and, and kind of gives you the feel of Halloween all
1: year. I love that, like a gothy bake shop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Baker Anna Ariaga. More information about her pop-up, The Ghoul Next Door, is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll hear how penicillin takes center stage in the musical The Mold That Changed the World, coming to Pullman Yards this week. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Before the discovery and development of penicillin, many of today's common diseases were deadly. The antibiotic advanced the course of history after it became widely available in the 1940s. Penicillin is the subject of the musical The Mold That Changed the World, which premiered at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2018. This week's thanks in part to the CDC Foundation, the show is coming to Atlanta's Pullman Yards. Recently, Lois discussed the production with the show's co-creator, composer, and director Robin Hiley along with performer Rob Parr and Dr. Judy Monroe, President and CEO of the CDC Foundation. Hailey began by explaining why he wanted to create a musical about the invention of penicillin. Funnily enough, quite a few people have
6: asked me this question. And <laughs> the, reason, the reason that this whole project came about was that I, as a CEO of a theatre company based in Edinburgh in Scotland, I was approached by an infectious diseases doctor back in 2016. And Megan Perry, Dr. Megan Perry is her name, and she came to me and said, wouldn't it be a wonderful idea to write a musical about antibiotics? And I kind of looked at her and thought, hmm, that's not a typical subject for a musical. But Megan was very dogged and sort of sent me away with some things to read and I sort of started scratching the surface of what a problem antibiotic resistance is becoming these in the present day. And I also went away looking for a story that might uh, be suitable to turn into a musical theatre piece and was sort of so gravitated towards the famous Scottish scientist, Sir Alexander Fleming, and his discovery of penicillin and sort of got to got to reading about his life and his journey that he went on throughout both the first and second world wars and how how his story came to create this incredible wonder drug and how then things have developed since so yeah it was really inspiring to have Dr Megan Perry come and present something that was a very very left field topic but then then as I say, scratching the surface and finding out more about the, the story of Alexander Fleming and penicillin. Yeah, that was, that was kind of how it all, that, that was the genesis of it.
7: Well, I understand his discovery of penicillin was accidental. Can you tell us a bit more?
6: So the story goes in 1928, which, and, and we portray this, this bit of the story about a third of the way through our show, we tell, it, we tell the story of Fleming as a young volunteer in the, in the London Scottish Regiment of the British Army in, in the First World War first. But the story of his discovery goes that Fleming had been off on leave for a couple of weeks and he gets back to his little lab at St. Mary's Hospital in London his little lab in the bacteriology department um, where they fiddle around with uh, Petri dishes and microscopes and things like this. And now Fleming was a bit of a messy scientist and he sort of, he sort of had left lots of these little Petri dishes, you know, the little round dishes that go under microscopes. He'd left them all out on his desk whilst he was away and he came back to uh, quite a lot of washing up to do, put it that way. And uh, one of his friends, a chap called Merlin Price, dropped in to say hi to him and as Fleming was sort of clearing up his bench and absentmindedly kind of talking to Price he noticed something unusual on one of these Petri dishes something that he didn't expect to see and Fleming being although being a bit of an untidy scientist being a sort of real boy scout as a result of all of his experiences in his earlier life he noticed something that was unusual there and was able to put two and two together, which ultimately, many, quite a number of years later, turned into penicillin. And, yeah, this little piece of mould changed the world.
7: Indeed. Now, in addition to Alexander Fleming, there's another character in the musical named Rose. What is their relationship? Mm,
6: well... You're very well informed.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I try.
6: You're very well informed. So we tell Fleming's story from the end of his life, and we drop into lots of different memories throughout the show. And one of these memories, like like I, I just described of him making his discovery. And we need, from the audience's point of view, we need somebody for Fleming to talk to. And we being musical theater and in the theatre, we have this wonderful opportunity to ask the audience to kind of suspend their disbelief to an extent so, so we can, you know, take them on a, on a journey. And Rose is a character that Fleming speaks to throughout, who kind of, we don't really like to say she is Mother Nature, but she kind of, she kind of is an enigmatic Mother Nature who Fleming is speaking to kind of in that moment between life and death at the end of his life and we use yeah like I say rose to rose to speak to fleming and ask him lots of different questions about about his life and his discovery of penicillin and then his legacy so yeah the moment when your life flashes before your eyes who do you meet well for fleming he meets rose
7: <laughs> ah, now you mentioned dr megan perry and her suggestion of penicillin as subject for the musical Will you tell us how the partnership between the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy, your theatre company Charades, and the UK government helped with producing this musical?
6: Well, yes. Megan initially managed to get some grant funding from The learned society they are they're a they're a charity and a learned society and they represent lots of different doctors and consultants from all over Europe actually the British Society for antimicrobial Chemotherapy, and their chief executive and their board you know had the to their huge credit had the presence of mind or ability to kind of think outside the box and realize how important it is to think of new ways to communicate public health threats and they kind of took a bit of a gamble and then we had a fair bit of success for the production when it premiered in 2018 at the big Edinburgh International Fringe Festival and since then obviously Covid happened which was a very tricky time for the arts but the BSAC as we call them for short they were very helpful in introducing us to um, some people in the UK government who care deeply and really have the problem of antibi- antibiotic resistance at the top of their agenda, led by Dame Sally Davis, who is an international envoy on AMR, as it's called an- antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance. And Dame Sally Davis has been a real ambassador and sort of figurehead, not just for AMR, but for, for our project, which is using the arts to To kind of highlight this global issue. Um, So that's kind of the beginnings of how these these different organizations fit together.
7: Judy, how did the CDC become involved with this production?
4: Yeah, so you know the CDC Foundation supports CDC, and one of the big challenges that we have in public health is antimicrobial resistance. Uh, In fact, it's ranked by the World Health Organization as one of the top 10 global public health threats. A lot of people don't realize that it is responsible for more deaths worldwide than HIV, AIDS, and malaria. And so the CDC Foundation, due to all of our work with CDC, got involved with the musical uh, because we certainly see the value of the arts, the, the value that they play in communicating important public health messages, especially complex messages, being able to to put it into an art form. As Robin mentioned, uh, Dame Sally Davies, uh, she reached out to me. She's a, a force of nature herself, I will say, and mm-hmm. reached to me about the musical, and it was very intriguing and interesting to us. So that's how we got involved in supporting this.
7: With the CDC located in Atlanta, how does the musical take on special meaning for our community?
4: What I've seen, CDC staff, the scientists at CDC are quite excited about this. In fact, before the CDC Foundation agreed to sponsor this, I had a lot of conversations with folks at CDC, and they saw the value as well. This is incredibly important, I think, to Atlanta and and to our agency that supports not just public health here in the United States, but around the world. They're revered for their uh, scientific uh, support of of public health. So, it's quite remarkable that we're going to have it here in Atlanta. Mm.
7: Robin, on each tour stop, I read that you recruit local science and medical professionals to be part of the chorus. I was intrigued with why you'd want non-theatre professionals, particularly in STEM, to be part of the production.
6: You're absolutely right. We do we do, do that. Our cast is made up of a touring professional group of actors. We have 11 actors who have all kind of got their credits on the West End in London. but critically to this project and to the message we also as you say recruit local local people from each city that we that we go to visit and we try to target scientists and healthcare professionals so people who are working with this issue day in day out and really really understand not just the kind of science and the implications of the issue itself but also really understand the need to communicate this message so I kind of like for me when I speak to our touring cast we talk about it in terms of having two groups of professionals in the cast we have a group of professional actors who are in kind of their element you know we also have a group of professionals who really get the issue of amr and really understand the importance of communicating the message and we as a professional theater company are giving the scientists and healthcare professionals a voice to do it and the interesting thing is that day in day out again the scientists and healthcare professionals don't necessarily have a a means by which to communicate it to the general public all the time so we we are you know, and it's it, and it's not like we're gonna we're gonna hit the whole of society with a musical, but we're gonna do our level best to reach as many people as possible and give these wonderful volunteers a voice.
7: So do these non-theater, non-music professional sing?
6: They do, they sing and they act, and we've we've found that there's amazing talents hidden below the surface. <laughs> what we do is we we put a casting call out and in in atlanta judy and her team at the cdc foundation have been hugely helpful in getting getting the word out not just through the cdc foundation and the cdc but some of the other universities and university hospitals and other kind of like healthcare settings in atlanta and we we actually came to atlanta myself our musical director and our producer came about a month ago and we ran we kind of ran auditions for two days and um Pull together this wonderful cast of volunteers, of whom we have one on this this call, in fact.
7: Yes, and I was going to talk with him next. Robert. Yes. I read in your bio that you were classically trained as an opera singer. Please tell us about your journey from opera singer to firefighter and paramedic.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I know that's not the typical path uh, to become a firefighter. Uh, I'm just the kind of person, I think life is so fascinating. Everything's so interesting to me. And I think the story, the full story is too long to tell you here, but uh, I eventually got into firefighting because I really, I'm a servant at heart. I love helping others. And the fire department is really, that's what it's all about. I challenge anyone to to find something more rewarding or that made them happier than helping others. And that's my favorite part of being a firefighter. But in my music days, I, I, did, I actually went to Boston and I got a bachelor's degree from the New England Conservatory of Music. And then I moved up to Montreal and actually got my master's in music at McGill University before becoming a firefighter.
7: That's very fine training.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I, I mean, you've, I, got,
7: you've got the cred, as we say, Ron.
0: <laughs> well, you know, now I have the opportunity to, to put some skills that I used to use all the time back into work in this musical that I hope uh, a lot of people can come see.
7: Well, you know, there are so many heroic elements in opera, at least in the subject matter, I, I could see where that part fits. But with such an intense day job, how do you find time to rehearse and prepare for a role such as this? You
0: know, that's a great question. It's funny how things work out. I'm actually grateful to be recently promoted in the fire service. We call it a uh, driver engineer, but I was recently promoted and I moved assignments from Station 15 in downtown Lawrenceville, which is actually Gwinnett County's busiest fire station, up to our training academy in Braselton. With that schedule, I'm working a, more of a typical 9 to 5 and working on continuing education for over a 1,000 men and women that work for Gwinnett Fire Department. And uh, because of that, they are long days, but I'm able to go to rehearsals at night when I get off work, and I'm happy to do
7: it. Hmm. Are there any stories, any moments from your job as firefighter and paramedic that inform your role in this musical in any way well
0: you know there's actually a lot more similarities than people realize to music and even firefighting i mean firefighters similar to artists firefighters are some of the most creative people i've I've met Uh, we when our bell rings at our station and we respond to a call we have to be ready to respond to anything i mean from structure fires to hazardous materials incidents to car wrecks but Also, a large amount of medical calls that we run, thats actually uh, across the nation, firefighters are mainly responding to medical calls, whether it's chest pain, strokes, diabetic issues, or even more chronic uh, illnesses and uh, infection. At Gwinnett, we actually are what we call a transport department, meaning that we have ambulances at all 31 of our fire stations. Some of our stations even have two ambulances because we're so busy. So we actually take people to the hospital and ambulances as well as do all the typical fire calls that other fire departments have. Hmm.
7: I guess this question would mainly be for Robin, but please, Judy and Rob, feel free to chime in. I was curious if there is one or if there are two favorite songs or numbers in this show you could share.
6: Alexander Fleming grew up in a part of Scotland called Ayrshire, which is down, sort of, on the west coast, going towards um, England. And he was the seventh son of a farmer, and there wasn't much work left for him on the farm by the time his six brothers ahead of him had all got the jobs. So, well, it was actually he and another and another one of his jobbers went brothers went south to London when they were in their teens. When, they, when Fleming was only fourteen, in fact, and his whole kind of support network and all of his friends that he made in, throughout these formative years for him whilst he was living with his elder brother, they were all made in this volunteer regiment called the London Scottish Regiment. And it was kind of the, the band of Scots abroad down in London. And what we do for, in terms of the musical is we see one of, one of the first memories or the first memory of Fleming's that we see is him after 14 years of serving with all these comrades who had become his very, very best friends, we see him making a very difficult decision at the beginning of 1914 that because he has developed his career as a clinician scientist, he's actually going to leave the volunteer regiment and go to work at St. Mary's Hospital and ultimately work for the the Red Cross and this happened in the, the May of 1914. And this, we have this particular song that I'm going to talk, talk to you about is, is, is Fleming leaving this regiment and we, and we managed to kind of give it that that sort of like real uplifting and nostalgic sort of feel. <laughs> Quiet
0: down, lads. On. But with this European war that looks more likely
6: by the day On the Hippocratic oath, to do no harm, I must obey. My place is with the Red Cross and the Order of St. John. It's with a heavy heart I leave hereupon. Well done, Fleming. And we over by Christmas, Alec. Mark my words. Good luck, my friends, my peers, my regiment for fourteen years. To London Scottish Volunteers. Moving forward, actually, it was tragic. All of Fleming's friends in the regiment, only a couple of months later, they were the very first volunteer regiment who were actually mobilised in the British Army in the First World War. And they all went to a place called Messines Ridge on the Belgian front, and they all died on Halloween, all of his friends. So when I read that story and realized the significance of that little lucky decision that Fleming made, that he was going to leave that regiment, go and carry on his calling as a, you know, having taken the Hippocratic oath, carrying on his kind of his calling as a doctor, I started realizing, oh, wow, there's a real story here. So that's one of them. And then. As a songwriter and composer, you would perhaps hope that I liked some of the tunes in the show. So I'm, And I'm also the most biased person I could possibly be to ask this question to. But there's another song called The Rose of No Man's Land, which is actually a song. The lyrics I actually found in this book of letters that were sent from nurses Serving on the front line in the First World War, back to their partners and all sorts of different correspondence, and the and the roses of No Man's Land were the name that the First World War soldiers gave to the nurses. They were the roses of No Man's Land, and we have this song that I have set to these words, words of a wartime song, and it is really this message of hope and, like even in the darkest days, you still have, for example somebody there who, just like Robert is saying, is, is there purely to help people, even in the squalor of war. And we use this song throughout the show as the metaphor for hope. And it's ultimately the song that is sung at the very end of the show to say that, although antimicrobial resistance is a huge problem, just as Judy was explaining, there is hope because there is such power in community. And there are so many people out there, like Robert, who are willing to help. Key thing with this particular message is just to actually have some some small understanding of what the problem is, because as soon as we all have understanding of the problem, then we can collectively do something about
7: it. I wondered, with our being nearly three years into the pandemic, how has the meaning of this musical evolved for you?
6: I think that. COVID, in a funny kind of way, has done a huge favour to the show itself and its ability to reach more people because I think a lot of senior public health figures like Judy, like uh, aforementioned Dame Sally Davis, they're, they're really seeing and understanding the need that we need to communicate an issue like this in a different kind of way. And I think also the public is far is kind of ready and more receptive and have kind of more of a base understanding of of what a public health like catastrophe is because we've obviously just just lived through it all for us we've we're just all the more inspired by all of these scientists and healthcare professionals who have ultimately like been the ones who are responsible for hauling our societies out of these positions where we're in these horrible lockdowns because of all of their progress that they've made with vaccines and caring for lots of people who have suffered from the disease and you know the project is as much about is as much about these volunteers and giving them their voice and this opportunity as it is spreading the message itself and it's kind of you know it's 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 incredibly meaningful for us to to be able to give a lot of these people this opportunity that often is a you know a, a lifelong dream to have been to have been on a big stage or part of something like this so yeah it's hugely inspiring for all of us um, to welcome them into our company
7: wonderful judy do you hope that perhaps people who have been hesitant to get covid vaccines might see this show and realize my God, look at what penicillin could do. Look at how it changed the course of life as we know it
4: and reconsider. Is, is that part of your hope? Absolutely. We, we need to restore trust in science and trust in the, the methods that we have available so that everyone accepts things like vaccines. Uh, vaccines actually are one of the big defenses against Antimicrobial resistance. Because if you're vaccinated, it prevents getting the infection, and therefore you wouldn't need the antimicrobials or antivirals in the case of, like COVID-19. So that's that's what we're hoping for: is one helping people understand this complex issue, understand how life-threatening and how it really impacts all of us. The world will change if if we have antimicrobial resistance that uh, gets completely out of control. Think of the impact that has on treatment for cancer, for uh, even simple cuts that might lead to an infection. In the past, people would lose their lives many times. Today, we take for granted, oh, I'll just get the antibiotic. So it's it's all of the above that we hope this uh, inspires folks and helps educate.
6: And one one thing that I would also like to add is that the show itself, it's it's not necessarily thrusting a viewpoint down the audience's throat like our ambition for it is to tell fleming's story and tell the story of some of the people who did die from these terrible infections before antibiotics existed and show how they show how they then saved many lives and ultimately we would want audiences to walk away and you know start a conversation in their own lives about it and maybe go and decide that they want to learn a bit more about the issue and maybe kind of scratch the surface for themselves. You know, we, we're careful of this. We, we know that there are different beliefs with different people. And we, we, we do want to enlighten, but we're not thrusting it down people's throats.
1: Robin Hiley, co-creator and director of The Mold That Changed the World, along with performer Rob Parr and Dr. Judy Monroe, president and CEO of the CDC Foundation. The musical is being performed at Pullman Yards tomorrow, November 1st through Sunday, November 6th. More information is on our website WABE.org/City Lights. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Sam Beam, the musician also known as Iron and Wine. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WAVE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Sam Beam, also known as Iron and Wine, has captured listeners with his gentle vocals and introspective songs since 2002. You might recognize his music from movies and TV soundtracks such as Twilight and Friday Night Lights. Iron and Wine has also been nominated for four Grammy Awards in both the Americana and Folk categories. This summer, Beam joined City Lights producer Summer Evans, and he began by explaining how Ben Bridwell, the front man for Band of Horses, introduced him to the record label Sub Pop.
8: Ben and I grew up together in Columbia, South Carolina. His older brother is one of my best friends, and so I had known Ben forever, and He had moved out to Seattle with his band and they were recording music and just, you know, being part of that scene there. And so inevitably they ended up bumping into sub-pop records. And um, I was, you know, just doing stuff for fun, you know, in my spare time, recording music and writing songs and just keeping up with Ben because that's how we stayed in touch. When we were together, we would exchange music, you know, have you heard this or have you heard that? Because we just both, that's what we loved. And so um, when he moved out there, we just kept it up. We would send each other other people's music. We would send each other music that we were working on. So it was in, my stuff was in his ear. And when he um, was talking to Sub Pop, you know, being the magnanimous, incredible person he is, he just you know said, here you go. I want to see what you think about this. And they called me.
5: Wow. What a great friend.
8: (laughs) I know. The best one I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs)
5: <laughs> <laughs> and I mean to get picked up by sub pop records that's pretty wild because in case people don't know they were central to the grunge movement with bands like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Mud Honey um, I know.
8: you know I knew I was very familiar with what sub pop was I was just shocked that they were calling me <laughs> and given what I was making I was like you sure you have the right number but then they sent me other things they were putting out you know like the shins and some of Rosie Thompson's music at the time and Damien Girarda's music at the time. Um, and it, it made sense. And no one else was knocking.
5: <laughs> so did you ever feel that you had to follow suit with the grunge punk scene or?
8: <laughs> well, that's what I mean. I mean, by the time they called me, I feel like they gave me, you know, those records that I mentioned, they gave me evidence that they were still doing heavy music, but also shifting, doing other things. But I also, you know, over the years, they had put out some other kind of kind of quieter things. Not much, but some.
5: They were starting to branch out.
8: Yeah, yeah.
5: I read that you came up with your moniker, Iron and Wine, from a dietary supplement. <laughs> Is this yeah, true? Yeah. What's the backstory?
8: Well, I was working, I'd never heard of this stuff, but I was working on a film, you know, in the late 90s, a uh, student film in um south georgia you know one of those like gas station country store kind of combos
5: <laughs> very familiar and they
8: had yeah you know what i'm talking about. and they <laughs> had this stuff on the shelf called beef iron and wine i just thought that was such a weird combination of words i had no idea what it was but it, you know it was like some kind of supplement people drank you know along the lines of like castor oil and things like that that part snake oil part little placebo maybe <laughs> hopefully <laughs> but um i don't know for some reason the combo words just stuck in my head and so when it I don't know they rumbled around in my in my brain for a while until it came out on a on a cassette written handwritten cassette somewhere
5: and you didn't want to keep beef in front of iron and wine
8: (laughs) yeah let you let you wonder why (laughs) (laughs) leave leave it leave it a mystery
5: yeah why did you not want to go by Sam Bean when you were starting out
8: uh, you know, I just thought that it was boring on a on a marquee <laughs> <laughs> or on a handwritten cassette. Sam Bean didn't have the ring that iron and in. And you know, they also it kind of encapsulated what I felt like I was trying to do with the music, you know, sort of embracing these contradictions that life
5: presents us with. Mm. A lot of your songs are very introspective and reflective. How do you decide what you want to focus on in your music?
8: Uh, I don't the moment that I have decided I usually try to wiggle out of it <laughs> I don't know it's um it's a funny engagement there's no real right or wrong answers getting into it it's just you know suiting my taste at the moment and so a lot of the times you're you know it'll start with the melody you know I'll just be fooling around with the guitar and or the piano or something and come up with a melody and then you start scatting gibberish you know just humming a melody and sometimes a word will pop out and and you kind of build it from there it's very rarely that i start with like you know this song is going to be about the complex relationship between me and my mother or something like that you know just you, you start sewing in phrases into this melody and then you let your mind wander again and see what other lines or words might play well with the lines that you have so far and then you it's kind of like painting you know you just sort of make some marks and then you either erase them or paint on top and, you know, by the end, you ended up somewhere that you didn't expect, hopefully. I also sometimes, to be honest, sometimes you're just playing a rhyming game, which is, feels lame at the time when you can't feel go, a go good rhyme. <laughs> but uh, it also gets you out of a jam every now and then.
5: That's true. That's true. Last year, you released Archive Series Number 5, Tallahassee Records. These are some of your first recordings from 1998 and 1999. How did it feel to listen back to these songs and release them 24 years later?
8: it's a kick in the head it's really bizarre but uh you know i'm kind of used to it. we've been doing the archive series for a little while now and the first one was a real kick in the head because i hadn't listened to stuff for for ages and ages
5: did you cringe but, um, at all listening back to it or were you, uh, like, what? you know
8: not so i mean i feel like if i had done it maybe 10 years you know when i was really hard set on creating like some musical identity and like really like etching out my what i thought was the only i could write you know, some ridiculous idea like that that I had, you know, as I was starting out, um, I think I might have been a little bit more hesitant. But at this point, it's kind of like looking at old high school photos. You know, you can just laugh about, oh, check out. you know, the the way the hairdos at the time, <laughs> you know, where I feel like the distance probably helps.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I bet that felt very nostalgic listening back to them.
8: It does, um, you know, whether I like the song or not, it's really fun to just listen and say, oh, wow, who was I back then? Who wrote that song? Because I mean, half of them, I don't even remember writing, you know? You just it's like finding a photo book that you didn't know existed. that's full of pictures of you. It's pretty fun.
5: Are there any songs in particular that you really enjoy performing off of this new number five series? I've been
8: performing a couple of them. Uh, there's one called why hate the winter which is kind of a sweet little unnecessarily complicated song
3: there's <laughs> a In your eyes there are the words I would say If only I was braver
8: Yeah, that's the one I've been doing the most and it's, it's kind of fun because it's pretty quiet.
5: Yeah, and you know, it reminds me of your 2005 song, Make It As We Came.
3: She says, wake up It's no use pretending I'll keep stealing Breathing Yeah.
5: yeah, it's so interesting that these were some of your earliest recordings because it's evident that you already had your sound.
8: Right, yeah. I don't really know what I'm playing. I, I just play by ear. I mean, I've learned some chords since putting out records for a living, <laughs> but I didn't really know what I was playing before. So the sound is just the sounds that I found, you know, so it's just going to sound like me because uh, I don't I never took lessons or anything like that, so... It's hard for me to sound like other people.
5: Yeah. I should have asked you in the beginning. I know you said that you didn't have any formal training. How did you get into music and performing?
8: I mean, I always loved music. I mean, even when I went to art school and everybody, we didn't really talk about art. We talked about music. And so I was always really into it, but I didn't have any training. Well, my dad had an acoustic guitar you know, that he got I, you know, sometime in the early 80s, I think, but just sat in the closet. And so I started fooling around with that. And one thing led to another, honestly. But I never played shows. I didn't, um, you know, it was just strictly a hobby kind of thing. I didn't, I didn't play shows until I actually had a record out.
5: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I bet that was a nerve-wracking experience getting on yeah, stage the first time.
8: <laughs> definitely. It was not my idea of fun, but I also, it was exciting though, too.
5: Yeah. So I was introduced to your music through your song, Flightless Bird and Such Great Heights both songs along with uh, several others that you have have been featured both in TV shows and in movies. What was your initial thought when you were asked to have your song Flightless Bird be a part of the soundtrack of a teenage vampire movie, Twilight?
8: At the time, I was whatever came along. I was like, yeah, hell yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> you know, I I love participating in that way as my Artist ego loves to be stroked it's is a you know it's a it's a nice (laughs) it's a nice pat on the back so it was super exciting i had never heard of those books my friend Stuart at Sub Pop records i think he's the one who called me and said i think this is gonna i think this is really gonna happen so i was excited yeah i have no preconceived idea what it was gonna be or how they're gonna use it or i was just glad to be a part of it i was a quick
5: What's next for Iron and Wine? Is there going to be an archive series number six?
8: I'm sure there will be. I'm not exactly sure when it will be out, but we've got plenty more stuff to bless the world with. I'm going to go into the studio in the new year, early part of the new year, and record some new stuff. It's been, been quite a while. There's a small, short record of songs, Lori McKenna's song. There's an artist named Lori McKenna that I really like. I recorded some of her songs, still finishing up a concert movie that we made i think that does it
1: (laughs) (laughs) sam beam the singer songwriter known as iron and wine speaking with city lights producer summer evans beam's newest release lori is available now and more information is on our website wabe.org you've been listening to city lights our daily exploration of arts and culture Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the upcoming Dia de los Muertos celebration at Oakland Cemetery, and we'll check in with Atlanta comedian Lace Larrabee. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with Baker Ana Arriaga, a.k.a. The Ghoul Next Door, you can catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There, you'll find a complete archive of our stories, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and Shelly Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Droves, and we'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We are at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram, and... You can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more, Listen to our Peabody award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
2: The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.